1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkle from the Better Reading Podcast, Stories Behind the Story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Charlotte Wood, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. I can't believe we haven't spoken before.
2: I know. I feel like we've spoken lots of times in an informal setting. but Yes. You know. Not on, not on
0: recording. No, no, that's right. So I'm super excited about this conversation because, you know, even though I know you work, I really don't know very much about how you came to writing. So we're going to talk about that. Let me introduce you. Charlotte Wood is the award winning author of six novels, including The Natural Way of Things, which won the 2016 Stella Prize, and The Weekend, which won the 2020 Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year. Her nonfiction books are Love and Hunger and The Writer's Room. Her latest book, The Luminous Solution, is an inspiring work of nonfiction about creativity, resilience, and what we can learn from artists. Do you know, I've got some favourite words. I know this is a bit dorky, but I do. And luminous
2: is one of them. Oh, really? I write lists of words that I love. It is a beautiful word, I think. So The Luminous Solution comes from uh, an American writer called Janet Burraway, and she, I, I used it for the title because I love the quote so much. She says, once I'm working, the process is much the same in every genre, the effort to get myself to the computer, a period of grumpy struggle, despair, the luminous solution that appears in bed or bath, joyful work, repeat, repeat, repeat.
0: Yeah.
2: I love that because it really Pretty much encapsulates the process for me the way it always has
0: been. Because I, I'm always sitting on the other side, <laughs> which I enjoy. I, I'm actually always sitting on the other side of art, actually, because, you know, I mean, reading is one of my great passion and writing and storytelling, but also painting. I, I'm a real admirer of painting and photography, and I have a collection of those. So I feel as though I'm the beneficiary. I never have to do the hard work, but I get to
2: enjoy it. I'm a big fan of of visual arts as well and especially paintings and my husband, who you know, has an art transport business called Art Van Gogh and we have over the years sort of through his business, um, just through his meeting artists started collected quite a lot of paintings. So actually in The Luminous Solution, there's quite a lot about visual art and painting. And I feel the same way. It always looks so effortless. I think, oh, they just stand there and do it. How incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know it's not like that. No, I know. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. But I like being a, be- a beneficiary of artists. I really do. Um, And it's kind of this book is about that, isn't it? It's talking about the process. Do you know when I was younger, I always thought that what is the value of art when all these terrible things are happening around us? Do you get asked that a lot?
2: Um, Yeah, it's interesting. I think artists do get asked that in a way that other people don't and I'm not really sure why. I once had a woman say to me at a book event, look, I used to write, but then I decided to do something useful with my life um, and help people. Have you ever thought of doing that? and I sort of was very taken aback that someone would come to a book event and basically tell you that your life was useless but you know my reply to her was well for a start I actually do quite a lot of things in my life to help people that you might not know about but also that art helps me you know art has always helped me um, understand things about my life resolve things in my life Um, but I'm also kind of interested that I don't think people go up to um, bar staff and say, why don't you do something useful with your life? Or they don't go to garden centres and say, why don't you do something useful with your
0: life? I, I'm really surprised at that comment for somebody going to a book event because for me, f- fiction and non-fiction has been such solace for me in COVID and has taught me so much about resilience and has helped me so much that it's astounding that you don't think that writers add value. Yeah, wow, that's an extraordinary yeah. comment, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was kind of unusual, and I think there was a slight intake of breath around the room. Yeah, <laughs> I can yeah. imagine. I, I think there's a certain feeling sometimes where people think because you're in this. I read once an, uh, Shirley Hazard quoting Auden. Yeah talked about people treating writers with a mix of esteem and envy and I thought yeah that's kind of interesting where I think people assume that you have this lovely breezy life and you sit around oh yeah yeah (laughs) and you know it is I think it is a huge privilege to be able to write an absolute privilege um But it's a privilege to be able to do a lot of things. Well, you know, it's a bit like when I used
0: to work in a bookstore because I was a bookseller for many, many years. And um, people would often say, oh, you're so lucky. You can just sit around and read books all day. Now, I was lucky because I loved the job. I loved it dearly. But did I get to read a book in those 10 hours that I was standing on my feet? Never. I mean, the joy was talking to actually readers.
2: Yeah. So it's a weird thing. I don't know. I think... You know, in that woman's case, maybe there was something about her having wanted to write at some point and then, you know, I don't know if she really did stop purely because she decided to be useful or maybe she couldn't do it. And, you know, the thing is I don't think people ever realise how hard it is until they try to do it and then you understand the kind of, you know, I don't think I have a hard life by any stretch, but, but making... Fiction is difficult. I've talked on this on this podcast before,
0: um, and you may have heard me say it. I feel, from where I sit, it's such a difficult job. I mean, I've spoken to over four hundred authors, you know, in the past couple of years at length, and. I find most writers work really hard. They lock themselves up. It's largely solitary. Then, well, if you haven't got an agent or if you haven't been published, that's another challenge, you know, to get there. But even somebody like you who has all of that and has a great publisher, you still then have to go through the editorial process. And then finally, when that book's out,
2: everyone has an opinion. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, I think think once you've finished a book, it's kind of none of your business anymore, really, as a writer. It doesn't belong to you and people are free to like it, hate it, talk about it in ways that you find. Talk to me more about that. Do you really believe that? I do because if you're making something to put out in the world, you have to put it in the world and come what may, you know, and that doesn't mean that it's not sometimes hard to put it into the world and sometimes I mean the worst thing is when you write a book and you put it out and then just sort of vanishes you know immediately which happens to all of us yeah and it happens more than it doesn't happen in a way but that's when you discover that the reason you write is for the process of making you know it's not the pleasure the only reliable pleasures and satisfactions come from the act of doing this thing of discovering what you discover of of making something beautiful or meaningful to you and you can't expect other people to feel the same way about it so I, you know I, I say that having been extremely lucky with reviews and that sort of stuff but I know the day will come again where I put a book out and nobody cares and part for the course. and if you if you don't if you can't accept that, then you're really not cut out for it. I mean, it's so much of the writing life is about stuff that isn't writing. You know, it's about tenacity and resilience, um, resilience and dedication. And it is a sort of vocation, really. It's mm. not a job. You know, I was thinking about um,
0: painters the other day, and you know, and I know you know a lot about Australian painters as well. And I was thinking about Ben Quilty, right? And a few years back, way before his work was worth a fortune, I tracked him down and went down to Melbourne and bought two pieces, you know, which I absolutely adore, right? And he happened to come over um, a few years ago now, pre-COVID, and he's like, oh, that's where they are. That's where these two. Uh, I hadn't thought about it before, but I thought, you know, with painters and not so much photographers because they can get prints, but with painters, once that work leaves them, it really does leave them,
2: doesn't it? It does leave them and they may never see it again. They don't know where it is. No, that's right. One of the nice things um, about Sean, my partner's job, is that whenever he goes to a house where he sees a picture by another artist that he knows, he asks the people, can I take a photo of it for the artist? Oh, wonderful. They say yes and he and they're just delighted to see yeah. where it's gone and where it lives and what's around it and yeah. you know, what sort of a house it's in. Because as you say, they don't know. They go to a gallery and off it goes. And But in a way, I wonder if that sort of frees them as well from attachment to that previous work. Because writers can sort of keep their books near them and be over-attached in a way to the work that they've done already. Whereas I think in some ways it would be quite healthy to have that, just complete liberation from it and just the the, the next thing to to look mm, to. and to start working on hey okay so
0: tell me about yourself so where did you grow up were you a uh, avid reader as a child how, how is it that that you came to writing
2: So I grew up in a little country town called kuma yeah and I am from a big Catholic family there were five kids in my family um, we had a very free-range sort of childhood, you know, growing up in the 60s in a country town was just, we were just outside all the time pretty much, even though it was bloody freezing down there and I've never, ever gotten warm since. i have uh, gotten used to
0: it. Do <clears> you know, I um—I grew up in Glebe, which is not country at all, but we were out. We'd go out at 9 o'clock in the morning and not come back till 6.
2: Yeah, I think there was something yeah. very innocent about that time, even though obviously things happened. They did. I, <laughs> You weren't, there was no fear of going about the world. And, you know, I think because there were so many of us in my family. Actually, not long ago, I went back to Coombe and just sort of drove through there and, and took my husband around the streets of the houses that we lived in. And I was so shocked at how tiny they looked. It was sort of like, oh, my God, that place, how could seven people fit in that house? But you we know, do. We did.
0: Right. Well, let me tell you one. So I did that once a few years back now, and it was a tiny, tiny apartment above a butcher in Redfern, and there were six kids and two adults. So there was eight of us. And when I looked into it, it was just one room. There was no bedroom. It was a kitchen, a bathroom, and one room. We lived there for a year until my parents could find a place to live. Wow. Yeah.
2: That's amazing.
0: Well, oh, it's different resilience back then too. It was different. The idea of a room of your own—oh my god!
2: Yeah, that, that was pretty amazing. Well, obviously, plenty of people still live like that. You know, plenty. We just live in, in now in a part of our culture that's obviously wealthy enough for that to be unusual. But I mean, I think that's one of the things during COVID. You know, seeing people on the news in in really locked down areas of Western Sydney with five kids in an apartment with two, you know, parents working at home and so on. Anyway, that's getting off the track. So we, my parents were pretty creative people. My dad was especially talented in sort of, he was one of those people who could make anything, you know, one of those men probably, again, of that sort of generation who he could make electrical things, he could make furniture, he could make, uh, he, he painted and drew and he would make toys for us. But he, he also um, was quite involved in the little theatre in the town. So he made props and costumes and acted and all that. So we were, and my mother was a florist and a very beautiful gardener. They were both English migrants. And so we were very encouraged to make things. If you wanted something badly enough, you'd somehow found a way to make it. with help or whatever and because we're in a little country town with there was you know one shop and you know one department store it just wasn't the kind of amount of consumer stuff around so we you know we had sewing classes at school and all that was terrible terrible so the, the idea of making things was completely natural to us and to kind of everyone around that time and I really loved English at school. I was, you know, one of those little swatty, top of the class English students. Uh, I loved reading. I loved writing essays, but I never thought about writing fiction
0: ever. Did you think about being a writer?
2: No. 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 I th- what I did do was go and work on the local paper when I left school. All oh, right. Because I was good at English. Yeah, you know, when I did work experience, that was sort of go there and do that. And so I, then I did a cadetship on the local paper, you know, writing little articles about new sheep shearing shed or um, something to do with the ski industry or whatever. So I worked there for a couple of years, and I didn't start writing writing until I went to university as a mature age student my dad died when I was 19. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Thank you. Of cancer. And so that was a giant shock. Mm. You know, one of those catastrophic shocks Mm. for our family. And just after he died, I started university in Sydney. And then I went home after six months, I couldn't really cope. And when I look back, I think I was just in terrible grief. But At the time, I just thought it's too big and too scary, you know. I went to the University of New South Wales, which was huge, you know, coming from my tiny little country town. And I I lived out of the uni with some friends of my sisters who had already been living in Sydney. But I just went back home because I just felt overwhelmed. So I went back home for a couple of years and then I went off to Bathurst University uh, at Charles which It was the first year that it was called Charles It was Mitchell College before that. But I had a journalism degree, and I just enrolled in that because I just wanted to study again, but I still didn't know that I would do writing. But at university, I sort of just started dabbling in creative writing, had a great teacher called Joan Phillip. And then I just sort of was a bit of a dilettante for a while, writing little bits and scraps, but I really enjoyed it. And then I moved, finished uni, moved to Sydney, and then my mum got sick and she died when I was 29. Right. And that was a kind of turning wow. point for me as a writer because I suddenly, I'm sure you've had the experience, everybody's had this, when, something, mm. when some large crisis happens, life separates very clearly into things that matter and things that don't matter to you. And after mum died, I knew suddenly that writing mattered to me and I wanted to pursue it wholeheartedly, not in a kind of half-assed, lazy sort of fashion that I had done before. And I also think looking back now that writing was a place to take this this grief, not that I wrote about it specifically, but it was sort of the intensity of emotion I could put into, into writing where I couldn't really take it anywhere else in my life. And as I say, it's kind of hard to explain because of I wasn't writing about, oh, my mother died and my father died. No. But but I think there was a lot of sort of opaque, grief-infusing stuff that I, I wrote. And I remember coming across a, um, an interview with um, Edna O'Brien and she said people become writers because they have an intensity of feeling that normal life cannot accommodate. Mm. And I thought, yes, that's, that's how I feel. I could go to my, you know, notebook and just write and write and write and not feel that I was overwhelming somebody with whatever was coming out of my head. I, so at that point I thought, right, I want to get serious about this. Not that I thought that I could be a writer, but I just wanted to devote myself to it properly, which meant doing classes, really committing, really trying, you know, not just sort of phoning it in when I tried to write something, but really being serious about it. And my ambition at that time was to finish something. It could be a story story. Before I'd written some little vignettes and fragments that weren't even really stories. I had a couple of things published in very tiny, you know, anthologies or whatever. But the idea that I wanted to finish a story took hold and I would just, and I would arrange my life in a way that made room for writing and made it central in my life. Mm. So I, you know, would give up other things like a bit of socialising or a bit of TV or, you know, I would write on the weekends um at night I had full-time job for the first several books I wrote. In journalism? In journalism. Yeah, I worked in trade publishing. Yeah. As a sub-editor and, oh, and right. I really yeah. liked that work actually. Mm-hmm. And I worked in medical publishing. And then eventually I so I just sort of did that for years and years and years. I and I wrote my first book was published when I was, I was about 34. And then I just kept going.
0: Okay, so touch on that. So how is it that you got published? I think this is really important because I speak to so many writers that have written before, but then they know that this is the book that they think might get published. It doesn't work for everyone, of course. But is that the kind of feeling that you had? Is that why you
2: took it out there? I had a very strange first publication experience, which was that I wrote my book. uh, I had I got involved with Varuna, the writer's house in the Blue Mountains, Mm -hmm. which was fantastic support for new writers. And I would recommend it to anyone starting out in writing. It sort of gives you a community. It gives you support with I did a couple of mentorships with I did one with Brenda Walker, brilliant Australian writer. I did another one with Judith Lucan Amundsen, who's Mm. a very esteemed editor. And it was while I was working there with Judith that she said, I think you've finished this book now. And I was completely shocked because I thought it would take me longer. It took me, you know, several years. And then she took it to pick it all for me. In the meantime, uh, an agent called Fran Bryson had come to Verona. I remember Fran. Reading. Yeah. Yeah. And, she, and she'd said to me, "Oh, when you finish that book, send it to me. So I thought, Okay. But So there's this very strange thing where within two weeks of finishing the book I had an agent and a publisher um, and, you know, a reasonable publishing deal. And I was really couldn't believe it because it seemed so easy and I'd been, you know, prepared for years of struggle getting published and probably getting rejected and all of that.
0: I just want to go back and just thought this is very interesting to me, that you didn't know the book was finished until somebody told you.
2: Yeah, I think that's quite hard, especially in the beginning Because, you know, I'd never written a book before So, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd finished drafts of it, you know, several times But I was like, oh, well, obviously there's more work to do Because there's always more work to do, you know, yeah. like that I guess, you know, at that point what was great was having an experienced editor say No, take that ending off and it's done And I was just sort of staggered uh, it was a tiny little book. It's a very strange book called Pieces of a Girl, which would never be published now. And, yeah, so that was the publishing experience. And, it, it, it um, you know, it, it pretty much sank like a stone. It was well-reviewed, sold a few copies and then got pulped <laughs> at the lovely right of passage for many writers. (laughs) Let me tell you this. Once I was working in a bookstore in London
0: and I think I was too young to understand the value in this, but we used to, it was called Dylan's, a really big store. It's like a department store. And I worked in the kids department, but next to me was like the sale and the seconds books and the the books just before they got popped right and, you know, the clearances. And one author came in once, I, I don't remember who it was, and tried to steal his pile of books because he was so offended. Now, at the time, that didn't mean all that much to me. I just thought, oh, well, he's crazy. But now when I look back at it, I really do empathise with that person. Like, yeah, wow.
2: Because when they were going to pulp them, you were allowed to buy them. They wouldn't give you any. (laughs) Like, but you don't want them. Why can't I have them? And then, you know, you don't really want them either because nobody else. (laughs) (laughs) That was yeah, but that was fine. And then the the big shock that I did get was when I wrote my second book and that publisher rejected it. So I sort of had the the usual first publication experience, but on my second book, which I now know is extremely common, really. Yeah. Um, but that was incredibly fortuitous because it led me then to my beloved Jane Palfreyman. Yeah. Uh, who you know very well, who is at Allen and Unwin now. Back then she was the hardest working publisher I know. And biggest hearted as well, this amazing publisher. Yeah. Um, And Jane loved that book and published it, and that was called The Submerged Cathedral, and it got shortlisted for the Mars Franklin and, you know, still didn't sell very many, but it was, I was sort of on my way then. And Jane stuck with me ever since, which is a huge
0: gift for me do you feel that you know the transition from you know doing other jobs while you're writing and and getting yourself to a place where you write full time which i gather is where you are is that a momentous thing is that because one book takes off or is it because and i guess a lot, a lot of it can be financial as well because you know we all know that artists don't get paid well enough and neither do writers but was that a moment for you when you thought okay well this is going to be my career
2: I thought it would be my my vocation, sort of almost straight away, but I thought I would always have to do other work to earn money because mm. just the state for almost all writers in Australia, um, literary writers. So it was a kind of creeping thing for me to. So I, you know, I worked full time, and then I went part time. Mm-hmm. I basically, my income just went down and down and down for many years mm-hmm. <laughs> as, as I gave more space to writing because I didn't earn from my books, you know, at mm-hmm. all, really. And then I just felt like I just want to give this everything. And I did a PhD in 2013. I think I started that. And that was a huge gift because it gave me a stipend to live on, mm-hmm. which is like, You know $25,000 a year it's not you can't live on it but but it meant that I could do a bit of freelancing a bit of teaching but still get the bulk of my income from from that but also obviously it's supported by my partner a lot of the time and that's what happens with partners of writers are kind of um unsung heroes of the literary world really so we, and we didn't have much money; we were broke all the time, but you know that's all right mm. so then I did that for a while, and then the natural way of things took off, and that's when I could and it sold internationally, which was really the only way that I could start to make a living as a writer, even though it did very well here but and i you know I've had um Paid residencies, writer in residencies, and so on, but that's still writing full time. So that, um, but it was really the natural way of things that allowed me to kind of trust the feeling that this might be doable full time now. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I will never really trust it because I just know what the state of writing is in Australia. I know what I used to, you know, work for a time for the Australia Council. Mm. where I saw all the figures about how much writers don't earn.
0: And I think that they, they, there was a recent um, article that I read that it was like 15000 it averages $15,000 a year.
2: Yeah. Is that. that right? Yeah. So that's that's for all book writers. So that includes textbook writers and cookbook writers. and uh, know, right, okay, yeah. Literary writers, like the kind of fiction that I write, the average income, I think it was in and. Fifteen was four thousand dollars a year. So this is income from books. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't know that when you buy a book for thirty dollars, the writer gets three dollars. Yeah, you get ten percent of the cover price. So you know the rest goes to production and a bit to the publisher, not a lot, and a bit to the bookseller. And
0: yeah. oh, it is an industry that you don't get rich in—that's for sure. <laughs> I've always said that. I mean, even in terms of my business, it's you either love it or you need, if you need money, more money, then you've got to go and do something else.
2: Yeah. And so writers, you know, routinely teach or they have other jobs as doing writing, Mm. you know, corporate people or they, you know, everyone has a job Mm. uh, pretty much. And I feel that I have been incredibly lucky the last five years or so not to have a job. But I also expect that at some point I will need to go and teach again or something. I don't know. So
0: tell me about the Luminous Solution and how that came about. Would you say that it came about because of the reflection that we did during COVID?
2: It partly did. I wrote a piece for a newspaper. I was asked to write something about the inner life, quote, unquote, and it was sort of one of those fortuitous commissions because it forced me to think about something I had never really, you know, thought about consciously before, which is what is the inner life, what does it mean, and does it matter if we don't have one, and what if we do want a, a rich inner life, what are the things that sustain it, and what are the things that threaten it? So I wrote this piece, which is called Fertile Ground, which is now the first chapter of the book. And it got such a response when it was published that I found really surprising and heartening in that it wasn't writers who responded to it. I mean, they may have, but the ones who got in touch with me were just people Mm. doing all kinds of different jobs and whatever. He he said, this articulates exactly my feelings. And it was about the kind of utter panic that I flew into at the beginning of the pandemic, like we all did, Mm. and, and to kind of. Uh, manage that panic all I did was kind of stuff things from the outside world into myself including food and wine but also books and yoga classes and online drinks with my friends and you know sort of this panicky consumption of stuff from the outside world even if it was you know so-called nourishing things like yoga classes the way that I was consuming it was in this sort of panicky grasping acquisitive way and I you know fairly Soon realize I have to just stop this. I have to just calm down and and go still. And that stillness, of course, is where writers live generally. You know. So then I was sort of talking about the inner life for creative people is where we do our work. So then it was about creativity as well as the inner life. Mm-hmm. And I had had over the years many thoughts and written quite a few bits and pieces for various publications about. My own creative impulse and the creative impulse of other people. So I thought, oh, maybe it's a good time actually for a book that looks at creativity and what it is and how it's best encouraged. And I mean creativity in a, in the widest possible sense. In because the- you know, Charlotte,
0: it really spoke to me, and I'm not an artist.
2: Oh, good, thank you. That's I really wanted it to speak to people who weren't yeah. professional artists. Yeah, you know, I say somewhere in the book that I think the the joys and the satisfactions that come from making something, anything mm-hmm. really profound. And I feel like they're a human right, you know, that we should, they're very deep and rich and they're not about consumption. They're about getting something from inside you and and making it on the outside of you, mm-hmm. uh, making it, bringing it into, into being. There's something really powerful about that. So you know, then I was looking at stuff that I'd done in my um in my PhD, which was looking at the cognitive processes of creativity and sort of articulating what, what they might be. And so I've got there's a chapter um, which is a Grumpy Struggle, Despair, and the Luminous Solution chapter. And it's the subtitle is Nine Kinds of Creative Thinking. So there were nine different processes that I sort of went into. But also. There are chapters in there talking to other artists and painters and um, mm. I learned a lot from from speaking with actors and, you know, all kinds of different um, creative um, pursuits. Mm.
0: I, I found COVID tough just like everybody else, but I found lockdown particularly tough because I live by myself and I really struggled with it. I really had to find a different way of being and that's hard.
2: Yes, and I think mm. we're... I don't live alone and I found lockdown incredibly tough and I was really concerned for my friends who do live alone because mm. I couldn't see them or help them or, mm. you know, mm. do anything because they're outside my, you know. Mm. But I think what we had to learn to do was go inward, mm. and it's a very scary place for a lot of us, mm. very confronting mm. to go into a quiet place. Yeah. And I, I, was, I didn't realise how noisy my life was. Until COVID hit, yeah. I think the luminous solution probably at its heart is about going into that quiet space Mm. and realising that, I think I said in the Fertile Ground chapter, that realising that stillness is not a void, it's a well, and it will fill with good things if you let it, if you don't sort of madly stuff things into it. But it's hard. It's a kind of discipline.
0: Mm. I think we'll end on that note. That's wonderful. Thank you, Charlotte Woods, so much. I knew I would enjoy our chat.
2: Thank you, Cheryl. That was really lovely. You could go on for hours. Thanks for having me. We could have. Thanks.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au.
1: This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed
0: this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.